Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Today's scripture will be from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 21, which is on page 588 of the Bibles in the Seatbacks. If you do not have a Bible, please accept the Bible and the Seatback as a free gift from Northridge. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you should be holy, for I am holy." And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Thus says God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this word, this call to holiness, God, this reminder of the, the basis on which we can come to you and, and become uh, holy, God, something that is inherent to you and foreign to us, and yet you call us to it, Lord. And so we thank you for that, God. We thank you for the hope of such a, a passage of, of Holy Scripture that reminds us of the, of the bigness the largeness, the, the, the grandeur of your redemptive work in us. And so, Lord, we thank you for what you're doing and what you're going to do in us. Lord, I pray that you would enable me to speak clearly and to um, speak fully what you have want your people to know and to hear. And, Lord, I also pray that you would enable all of this gathered people, God, to be able to hear with with spiritually enabled hearing and God, that you would, you would uh, cause us to grow onto maturity as we listen to these words. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. It's very good to have you here today. Um, I want to briefly remind you that next weekend, beginning on Friday night, is the Contend Conference at Flatland Bible Church next week, which we're fully participating in. It's going to be great. It'll start at 6.30 on Friday night, and then we'll have a session at 9 a.m. on Saturday morning. And I've been telling you over and over again to sign up. If you haven't signed up, do that. We're, space is still limited, and we're, we're getting really close to our capacity. So um, we have the QR code out there for you to zap. I think it's in your bulletin as well, and if you haven't signed up for that. But more importantly, because most of you have signed up, I want to let you know last week I announced that we'd be having a, a potluck to just kind of have fellowship with the other churches. And logistically, that became impossible for a couple of the other churches. And so we're not going to do the potluck. But we are still going to have the roundtable, but we're going to tack it on to the end of the morning session on Saturday. So um, if you were planning to bring something, thank you very, very much. Thank you for signing up. I even called out justice by name last week. You're off the hook, buddy. I'm sorry about that. But uh, um, uh, but please still make every every plan to attend uh, Friday night and Saturday, and we are going to have a great time. Everyone involved in that is getting really excited. Secondarily, on just a more uh, humbling note, I have to take responsibility for um, Pastor David's uh, misinformation this morning. I, I'm the one who put together the order of service, and I said, dismiss kids, Pastor David. So, um, And uh, knowing fully well that we did not have child care today, we always do that on the 4th. 
uh, or the last Sunday of every month um, because we want our kids to be able to participate fully in the body of Christ, not be segregated to something apart from us. We want them to see us worship. We want them to hear the word of God just like you do. We want them to, to watch, even if they're not participants, watch what happens at the table every Sunday. That's very important to us as a value um, so that they'll grow in their understanding as what it means to be a worshiper. So um, that that was my fault, and I don't want him to to fall on that sword alone. So I'll I'll, uh, I'll pull it out of him and thrust it into me. So um, this morning we're going to conclude our series that we began the last week of December that we entitled "On to Maturity," um, and hopefully, hopefully, this is every pastor's hope that we've made a compelling case for Christians to grow to mature to become uh not little children little babes as the as the uh, bible calls it but to grow to mature manhood and womanhood and specifically in things like their engagement with scriptures and their their engagement in prayer in the purity of their worship and in having an increased wor- uh interest increased outreach to the lost that are around them in obedience to the command of Jesus Christ. But without this final consideration that we're going to make today, all of these messages, every single one of the previous four messages, would be wildly out of context. Because today, we're going to think about what it means to pursue increased holiness. And this will tie everything else that we've talked about together for us. Now, I want you to know there is no way that I can completely cover this topic. I'm I'm glad that in weeks and months past at Northridge, years past, we've discussed this topic at length. And so there's a lot of resources available to you if you go back to our sermon logs on on either Facebook or our podcast page, and you'll you'll find those. But so, for example, I don't want to explain um, meticulously what the definition of holiness is because I recognize that I'm speaking mostly to Christians who have uh, at least a basic rudimentary understanding of what holiness versus unholiness is. And so uh, what we're going to talk about is how holiness is something that should permeate our entire lives. For example, we talked about the scriptures and prayer and worship and, and the Great Commission. And without the scriptures, we would have no accurate definition of what holiness is. It, it, because it's the Bible alone that shows us what holiness really is. It's not some tradition. It's not some denomination. It's not, uh, something that is the, the, you know, the, uh, sole possession of legalistic Pharisees. Holiness is something to which the entire body is called and we learn how to define what that looks like only through the scriptures. David recognized this reality. When he said in Psalm 119.9, he said, How can a young man keep his way pure? Well, what was the answer to his question? By guarding it, guarding his way according to your word. He's saying that holiness and, his, and, uh, and God's word were inextractably linked together. Great harm has been done in the church by legalistic and human-centered understandings of holiness. Oftentimes this gorgeous, beautiful, majestic thing in the scripture called holiness is stripped of its regal beauty when we reduce it to a list of pharisaical do's and don'ts. Ladies, why isn't your hair in a bun this morning? Ladies, how come you're wearing that much makeup? Guys, how come you sometimes, you know, watch movies or smoke cigars or whatever it is? We make this, this legalistic list with a, that kind of keeps us from, from understanding what holiness really is. But the Bible teaches that genuine holiness, the real deal, is to be a reflection, a sanctified reflection of God's character Itself, as as uh, Pastor David mentioned from Isaiah chapter six, is where we learn about that. What about prayer? Without prayer, that indicates our complete dependence on God's power, we would never experience bona fide holiness in either our body or our soul. 
Once again, we look to David to confirm this reality. Psalm 139, verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Listen to this. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. What is David asking for there? He's asking for increased holiness as a result of the examination of the Holy Spirit. Holiness is never, ever achieved. Listen carefully, because I would guarantee that if you're truly a believer, 100% of you who are truly believers have fallen into this trap. Holiness is never achieved by physical, mental, emotional, or spiritual exertion alone, but by a gift of grace that is granted to us that empowers those efforts. It's through the pure worship that we talked about a couple weeks ago, that the Holy Spirit's work of sanctifying us actually finds expression in the Christian life. I read to you this morning from Psalm 96, verse 9, Worship the Lord. How? In the splendor of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. Holiness endows our worship, both publicly and privately, with splendor. While unholiness actually contaminates our worship. Let me prove this to you. Isaiah chapter 1 begins, the verse uh, chapter of Isaiah's prophecy begins with, with God leveling an accusation against his own people about the impurity of their worship. Let me read just a small portion of it, two or three verses. Beginning in verse 12, when you come to appear before me, who has required uh, of you this trampling of my courts? Does God sound like he appreciates their worship? Bring me no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. He's drawing a a contrast there. He's saying, your lives are filled with iniquity, but yet you try to have these solemn assemblies, and God says, I can't endure it. Verse 14, your new moons and your appointed feast, brace yourself, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. See, Christian worship, Christian-looking worship, devoid of the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, is offensive to the awesome, thrice-holy God. Think about his words in Isaiah. He considers it vain. He calls it an abomination. He cannot endure it. He even says he hates it. God says that this kind of an offering of worship is a burden. But by contrast... Holy worship pleases him. Lastly, because holiness manifests itself in obedience to God, when we take the Great Commission to make disciples of every nation seriously, we're demonstrating practical holiness. What do I mean by practical holiness? Very simply stated, it's what Jesus said in Luke 6, 46. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Holiness is demonstrated by our obedience. Obedience signifies the reality of our holiness. So hopefully you can see that the series with which we've begun 2024 would have a gaping hole if we didn't tie it all together by discovering how to pursue a life of greater holiness, discussing what that might look like. Now the verse I've selected from Peter is helpful for this task. Let's ponder um, four aspects of the pursuit of holiness from this brief passage. Number one, how do we initiate the pursuit of holiness? Number two, what is the biblical call to holiness? Number three, what is the motive for our holiness? And number uh, number four, what is the power for and the promise of our transformation from foolish living to holy living? First, let's talk about this. What does Peter tell us about how we initiate The pursuit of holiness. Well, we find this in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There are three things that we have to look at here that are necessary to prepare for a life of pursuing holy living. First, 
Prepare your minds for action. What he's saying here is that you can't expect to stumble into a holy life by osmosis. It doesn't happen by accident. Holiness, a life of holiness, must be preceded by a conscious decision to live an obedient, God-honoring life. A determination has to be made to cling to what pleases God and discard everything that displeases Him, even with violent resolve. To make a clear declaration of allegiance to one thing, the thing that pleases God, and a clear rejection of the thing that doesn't. Now, how do we do this? Peter tells us we do this by being sober-minded. Think about the idea of a sober mind. A drunken mind isn't very clear on anything. Some of you with a past will know how most of the trouble you got into is when your mind was drunken and you could not think clearly. Not that any of you are guilty of that. Joking. A drunken mind has difficulty seeing things as they really are. You look at things and and you say, oh, it's not that bad. You know, it, I, 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 that's not really a habit, just something I fall into every once in a while. It's, it's not really that bad. My attitude isn't really offensive to God. My actions are not detrimental to others. My words aren't destructive to my spouse. A drunken mind can't see things as they really are. But sober-mindedness means that we acknowledge our sin struggles. And we do it with time-stamped specificity. We say, this is what the problem is. This is when I was guilty of this problem. This is the result of this problem that I have created by my own sinfulness. It never addresses, the, the one who's pursuing holiness never addresses his sin struggles with vagueness. You know, I have, I have some problems, you know, I, de- I deal with this every once in a while. But you never say, no, I deal, dealt with this this morning, and this is the attitude that I have, and this is, you, you, you never, you never allow yourself that kind of specificity, you do it with vagueness. But when you're pursuing holiness, You know where the problem is. You know what's required because of the word of God and the work of the spirit. And you commit to doing it. Now, while Peter's first two steps, preparing our minds for action and being sober minded, force us to acknowledge our propensity to sin and our intrinsic unholiness, the third properly orients us. If we just prepared our mind for action, if we just we're sober-minded, then we would most likely become very works-oriented, very, uh, you know, very kind of, uh, you know, I'm going to fix this problem on my own white-knuckle effort sort of thing. But his third step, if you want to call them steps, it, it orients us to the right kind of thinking. Here's how he puts it. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. All of our diligence to live holy lives on our own will prove futile. All of your efforts will prove futile. You cannot work yourself into holiness on your own. The key word there is on your own. Paul said this as well in in the more positive. I said it as a negative. Paul says it as positive in Philippians 2.13. What does he say? You've heard it. It's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In other words, if anything good is going to be produced out of the fruit of our life, it's going to be because of an internal working of God that produces that good thing. Minus the grace of God, we have no hope of ever conforming our lives to his will or obeying his commands. And while many verses throughout scripture, I quoted one, many verses echo this point, Peter looks even further down the road and he says it like this. He looks at the grace that will be brought at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now what's going on there? He's reminding us of a time after Christ's return when our sanctification will be completed. When we are made completely holy, reflecting God's glory. Now, Think about that. Did you know that that every one of us in here, if we were to go into a moment of 
of complete transparency, 100% honesty, all of us would have to say, yes, I struggle in this area. I struggle, in, And even like I said, specifically, I struggle here. I struggle there. I struggle with honesty. I struggle with lust. I struggle with anger. All these things that, that we, we constantly find ourselves warring against and sometimes falling to. But the promise of the Christian life, listen to me carefully, is that someday that will be over. Did you hear me? Because none of you seem too excited about it. There is a day coming, there is a day coming where you will never have that little internal impulse to bend the truth just to cover your reputation. That'll be completely gone. There'll be a, there'll be a time that comes, that's promised to come, when you will never, ever, ever be tempted to look on another uh, creature created in the image of God with lustful intent. It'll, it'll dissipate. It'll be gone because of the work, the completed work of grace in you. There will be time, there will be a time coming when you will never have the impulse of rage to take vengeance for your own position. It will be gone. And if there's anything that causes us to be motivated to worship our great God, it's that. To ponder the grace that will be revealed to us at the coming of the Lord Jesus, the appearance of the Lord Jesus. Our sanctification will be complete, will be made completely holy. And Peter seems to be saying, listen carefully, that we should hope for the grace that allows us to exist now, not then, but now, with an ever-increasing foretaste of that coming reality. What he's saying is, if on Wednesday your life looks really earthly, the, the, the longing for the grace that's coming with Jesus' return should cause you to want more of a foretaste on it on Thursday. Does that make sense? That it's a motivation to holiness that we say, I, I know who I am, but I want to be more like that. This is where we tie in verses, like I've mentioned a couple weeks ago. Not that your citizenship will be in heaven, but Paul says in Colossians, your citizenship is in heaven. And so holiness calls us to live like citizens of heaven and less and less like citizens of earth. I said it already, but I want to say it again. Without grace, holiness is impossible. But what grace does, it empowers us, not by ourselves, but through grace, to work and to strive for holiness. You may think, well, that sounds like works-based religion. Well, then you're going to have a real trouble with Hebrews 13, which tells us to strive for holiness. May I say that again? Strive for holiness, without which... No one will see the Lord. But you gotta understand when we talk about working and striving for holiness, A, we don't do it alone, and second, we don't do it to earn anything. We don't do it, we don't work for our salvation through our striving for holiness. We work because of our salvation. We work because we've been empowered. And so we work and we strive in gratitude for the saving grace of God in Christ. We look at a a, a Savior who has done so much to redeem us from the curse that we cannot imagine staying in the pit of our own depravity anymore, any longer. We want to come out of it. We want to become more God-pleasing. So that's the first thing. The second thing that Peter does in this brief passage is he focuses on the biblical call to holiness. And so we have to ask this question, is all of this passage based on Peter's own subjective religious perspective? What do I mean by that? When I was growing up, there was a big group in our city, and they were... Uh, they were part of a Pentecostal holiness movement. That's the reference I made earlier to, you know, the, all the ladies never wore makeup. Their, their hair was in, in uh, you know, a bun all the time. Long, never cut their hair. It was tied up in a bun. Their, their uh, skirts were floor length. Some of you know, uh, you know, people who have been in that kind of a movement. And, and here's the problem with it. If that's, if that's their choice, that's great. But here's the problem with it. It was to earn something. It was to like mark themselves out as, 
um, as better than all you pagans out there and your, you know, your painted faces and cut hair. You know, it's like, and so, and so it, it, it amounted of spiritual value to nothing. And so we have to ask ourselves, when Peter's making this appeal to holiness, is he talking about something like that? No! He's talking about something far more objective than that. He says it like this in verse 14. As obedient children do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, uh, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, going back to the very first phrase, Peter grounds our pursuit of holiness in God's relation to us as our father. Not as our drill instructor, not as our, you know, our warden. He says, as obedient children, he instructs us on how to, to pursue holiness as obedient children. He, he says, and the way you do it is don't be conformed. What he's saying is don't be squeezed into a mold. And what's the mold? The mold is our former ignorant passions. He's saying not to let our desires, the desires that we practiced and made habitual before Christ, not, not let them shape us like Play-Doh in a cookie cutter. And when he says this, this idea of conforming, he's repeating Paul's thought that you may be familiar with in Romans 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed, same word, same Greek word, Squeezed into a mold, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. As children of the world, before Christ, we were foolish and ignorant, proven by our affection and passion for things that are poison, things that are destructive. But our minds, having been renewed by the gospel, come into increasing alignment with what God calls good and acceptable and perfect. See, the basis for our pursuit is the holiness of Christ himself. Peter says, as he who calls you is holy, you also be holy. Now, it's true that Christ's holiness and his, when we look at Christ's holiness, it's perfect, it's complete, it lacks nothing as ours does. Ours is imperfect, it's progressive, we're growing in holiness. But it's our unity with him, it's the fact that we're united with Christ that fuels our desire to be holy so that we'll be like him, so that we'll be pleasing to him. This is, this is something that, that we never, that we could talk about every Sunday, still wouldn't talk about it enough. We never talk about enough the fact that part of Christ's redeeming work wasn't just to, and I'll mention this a little bit later as well, but it wasn't just to save you from something, to save you from hell. It was to unite him with yourself, with himself rather. He wanted to unite you with himself. You are united with Christ. You are one with Christ. Now, it's important to repeat what I've said frequently, even this morning, that we can't make moral improvements so we can be saved or sanctified, but we grow in holiness as clear evidence that we are united with Christ, that we are justified by God. Peter's saying that the fact that we're united with a holy Christ through his death and his resurrection is a promise of greater and greater holiness for those who desire and pursue it. You'll see that in Romans chapter 6. But without Christ's redemption, we could never become holy. We could never have any desire to be really holy. This was the whole problem with the Pharisees. They boasted that they had Abraham as their father, and and they they were meticulous about things like hand-washing and their, their diet and things like that, but they were never united with Christ to become holy. Their holiness was a was a figment of their own imaginations by their own definition. It is being united with Christ that gives us true hope of being holy. He also directs believers to be holy how? He says, in all your conduct. Now let me ask a painfully direct question, and I don't expect you to answer audibly, but let's be honest with each other. 
how prone are we to excuse some sins because society deems them minor or even unimportant? How, how often do we do that? How, how prone are we to justify our sin because of what someone did to us when we take the, the issuance of justice into our own hands? But here's the problem with that. Peter says that we should be holy in all of our conduct and God demands holiness from our whole being. He demands it in your thoughts. Now, if you're like me, that gives me pause because my words, my public persona might appear to be holy, but guess what, folks? Hate to disappoint you. My thoughts are often anything but holy. But God knows it, and he demands holiness in my thoughts. And if he demands in our thoughts, then we can just assume that God demands holiness in our actions. He demands holiness in our attitudes. And so we have to analyze all of these things, thoughts, attitudes, actions, in the light of the Bible. And in verse 17... Christ, or I'm sorry, Peter grounds his call for us to share in Christ's holiness in an Old Testament command. Now, um, a, a very famous but dubious preacher said a couple years ago that we need to unhitch from the Old Testament. Peter would not agree. Because he repoints everybody who's reading his letter to Leviticus 11.44. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy. Why? For I am holy. You're my people. You should reflect what I look like. Be holy, for I am holy. This is an example of continuity between the Testaments. The the Old Testament says, be holy, for I am holy. Peter repeats it in the New Testament. Be holy, for I am holy. The Jews failed miserably in their law-based pursuit of holiness. But grace, this is what I'm trying to drive home this morning. Grace makes the impossible possible. It makes the impossible possible. Because of grace, if you're truly experiencing the grace of Jesus, you are not doomed to a life of unholiness. Your holiness in this life will never be perfect, but you it will be increasing. It will be progressing, progressing because that's what grace does. It makes the impossible possible. And it also makes it a requirement for all the chosen people of God. You can't say, I'm going to let the preachers and the elders and and whoever else you think is important be the holy ones and I'm just going to be me. No. It makes it a requirement for the chosen people of God because we've been called in both Testaments, be holy for I'm holy. Now, after our call to be holy, Peter, Peter digs more deeply into our motive to be holy. Listen to this, beginning in verse 17. And if you call on him as father, which he mentioned earlier when he said as obedient children, as if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Now, Peter says here to conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. This is one of the many references to the fear of the Lord in Scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament. And this fear speaks not to raw terror, Like if the building were all of a sudden attacked by zombies, you might experience fear that is very different from the fear that Peter is talking about. Not that I am afraid of that. We already paid our zombie insurance, so we're good. But this fear speaks to reverential fear in recognition, once again, of what Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter 6. We recognize God's awesome holiness And when we do that, there's no choice but for us to recognize our comparative smallness and unholiness. Peter connects this fear to the truth that God alone stands as final judge of the whole earth. And we're also reminded that he's not just a judge, but that he judges impartially. In other words, 
you got to think about what he means when he says he judges impartially. In other words, the scriptures are telling us that no one is getting away with anything, no matter how big, no matter how small, no one's getting away with anything. The only refuge that you have to escape the impartial, severe judgment of God is to transfer your debt or have God transfer your debt to Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. That's what grace does. doesn't mean that your sins are never punished. It just means they're punished on Christ instead of on you. So it means that no one's getting away with anything outside of God's grace and that God never prefers one, nor is he unfair to another. God is perfectly impartial. And this should make us, all of us, far less flippant about our personal holiness. We see in this idea of God as an impartial judge how serious he is about his commands. He will not allow his character to be slandered by rebellious behavior found in his petulant children. Now, does this seem like an undue burden to you? If God's holiness demands our compliance, doesn't the threat of impartial judgment just doom us all? Well, we should keep reading what Peter says. We have confidence even before the face of God and his holiness because of what Peter says next. We walk in the fear of the Lord all the while knowing that we were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from our forefathers and we were ransomed not with perishable things such as silver and gold but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Christ's redeeming work is what sets us free to be holy. Now, I'm afraid that far too few of us ever consider that reality of the cross. What the cross did is it set you free to be holy. It set you free to live in the fear of the Lord. The the inverse is also true. If in your life there's no evidence of the fear of the Lord, you have right now, no matter where you're sitting, in this so-called house of God, you have every reason, if there's no evidence of the fear of the Lord, to question whether you are genuinely born again. And my greatest hope, I'm not a... Hellfire and brimstone guy, but my greatest hope is that some of you, if you're in that condition, would tremble. I don't care if you're here every week, that you would tremble as you analyze your life and say, there's no evidence of the fear of the Lord in my life. In Romans chapter 3, Paul writes this long list of, of the conditions that mark the lost. And one indicator right at the bottom of his list is that there is no fear of God before their eyes. Lost people, and you remember because you all have been one, some of you still are, some of you aren't anymore, but lost people sin blatantly with no trembling whatsoever. But the fear of the Lord is animated by a humble and thankful recognition of what it costs to make us holy. You, listen church, you were ransomed. And not with perishable things such as silver or gold. The things that we strive to grab onto and hold onto. They were nothing. They are nothing compared to what ransomed you. The precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish and without spot. How could we not love him? How could we not fear him? How could we not want to be like him? Going from one level of glory to the next. Again, this recognition of this holiness and this this purchase, this ransom that he made for us, compels us to gratitude. It compels us to worship. It compels us to godly fear. It compels us to the pursuit of holiness in our hearts and in our lives. To claim to belong to God through Christ, yet only grasp at the benefits of belief. The benefits of belief like getting out of hell. Like hanging out with respectable people, whatever it is. 
If you grasp at the benefits of the gospel without the sacrifice that goes along with it, it marks you, that action marks you as a liar. You must be pursuing holiness in the fear of the Lord to demonstrate that you are truly one of His. Listen to how the writer of Hebrews addressed people like I'm describing. Verse 20, uh, chapter 10, verse 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one, listen to these descriptions, who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? This refers to a covenant made, a sanctification granted, a spirit given, and all of them disregarded. This illustrates the desperate condition of the one who claims belief and yet despises holiness. Lastly, and most of all, most beautifully, Peter turns our attention to the promise of holiness. And I love the way he does it. Verse 20, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, To say that Christ was foreknown means that God's redemptive plan has been set for all time, before the foundations of the world, Ephesians tells us. But Peter makes the point relevant that even though something far predates us, the redemptive plan of God, he makes this point relevant by showing that Christ's appearance was for the sake of you. It was for the sake of you. For the sake of you. See, we greatly diminish the meaning of Christ's death by simply stating, Christ died, Jesus died for our sins. Now, all that's true, but see, the Bible doesn't simply stop there. It doesn't say Jesus died for our sins, period. But Matthew 1 says he will save his people from their sins. Not just the penalty of them, which is hell, but he saves them from the power and the presence of them. And this means that Jesus died. Listen to me. Jesus died to make you holy, not just save you from hell. Your ticket out of hell wasn't the completion of Christ's work in you. He died to make you holy. He was made manifest, Peter says, for the sake of you. See, sin results in misery followed by death, but holiness results in joy followed by eternal life. Even when the holy life is is attended by much earthly suffering, the sufferings of Christians. Listen, if you're a Christian this morning, you're suffering. Listen, the suffering of Christians has a purpose. Whereas the suffering of the sinner is only a preview of much worse to come. In the last verse we read this morning, verse 21, he says, Through him you are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Now we see that we are only a part of the holy nation that he'll mention in the next chapter because we've been admitted by the grace of God. We have been brought into this nation by the grace of God. And it says, through him you are believers. That's, that's how we know that. And all of this, all this bringing into his holy nation is so that our faith, our hope and faith will be in God. Now this seems obvious. All Christians should have their hope and faith in God. But why is this so clearly stated by Peter? Well listen, unholy people, the Bible tells us, put their hope and their faith in everything but the Savior. They put it in the uncertainty of riches or fame. They put it in their own lust for vengeance. They put it in their, their, their pursuit of sexual pleasure. That's where their hope is. That's where their faith is. But a life of holiness means so many things. It means that for us, the joy of the Lord is our strength. It means, as Isaiah 12 says, that He has become our song and our salvation. It means that his strength is made perfect in our weakness and that nothing we desire is better than him. Now, I'm about to close, but I want to say this real quickly. There, 
there's so much to this topic. And I, I, I do this frequently, and I know some of you aren't, aren't uh, voracious readers, but I want to just make a few suggestions. If, if there's something working in your heart today, let me just suggest a couple of books. Obviously, I've, I won't spend any time on this because I've, I've said this over and over. You need to read The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. That's where you start. You get a picture of The Holiness of God. Simple read, and you'll get it. Next, I would advise that um, for those of you that aren't really readers and, and you need a, a more simple version, something you can, not, not than Holiness of God, read Holiness of God, but but to, about practical holiness, read the book, The Pursuit of Holiness by Jerry Bridges. It will, it will really help in making some of these things that I'm trying to communicate clear. And then lastly, uh, a, a little bit denser read, but, but well worth the effort you would put into it, is a book by uh, Anglican bishop in, or a Church of England bishop in the 1800s called Holiness, a man named J.C. Ryle wrote. And so I, I don't want to just leave you here. I didn't give you a lot of practical steps, so I want you to, to pursue that if you're serious. Write those down, ask me after church, and I'll give you the titles, um, and you can, you can get those yourselves and read them, but it's well worth your time. But in closing, I want to say that in, in Psalm 73, Asaph complains that the wicked prosper while he suffers, and he can find no peace. He complains and complains in that, in that psalm until he enters the sanctuary of God. And why is that important? It, it's in the place of holiness. When he enters into God's holiness, that everything begins to make sense for him in such a strong, even, it, it makes sense for him even when he's in the mid, uh, in the middle of such a strong and inexplicable appearance of gross injustice. Nothing on the outside is going right, but when he comes into the sanctuary of God, everything makes sense. And life just makes more sense when we appropriate, embrace, and pursue the holiness that God promises us. The frustrating slings and arrows that we all experience of our own present existence, they won't disappear. But grace transforms the slings and arrows attacking us into a light and momentary affliction, as Paul calls it. We find ourselves borne up through holiness by the hand of God. After his lengthy complaint, Asaph comes to a startling realization. He says in verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? Listen to this. And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. Can we say that? My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. And my portion forever. My slice is God. You can have all the wealth. You can have all the esteem. You can have all the, the you know, your sense of justice satisfied. And I'll take my portion. My portion is God. See, only the person who desires the holiness of God for the glory of God can ever say such a thing as Asaph said. May all of us be able to do that. Would you stand with me? Lord, we recognize the God, the ways that we have been so lax in our pursuit of holiness, God. God, those of us who have been pursuing holiness recognize how far we still have to go. Some of us recognize how weary we've become in the pursuit of what pleases you. And Lord, I pray for your forgiveness for us this morning. And beyond that, I pray for you to empower us to seek the higher thing, the better portion. To be able to say through our, our love of what you love and, and our pursuit of holiness, to be able to say, who, who have I in heaven but you, O God? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Holy Spirit, don't let us off the hook. Call our name. Help us to resist temptation. Help us to pursue the grace that enables our pursuit. We can't do it on our own. We won't do it on our own. And so, Lord, we look to you for the strength we need.
In Jesus' name, amen. We could have our communion assistants join us uh, up front to serve at the table. Um, what, uh, what, you know, I, I, I just want to quickly just remind you of what I said earlier, that Christ did not die merely. He did die to save you from hell, but he didn't die merely to save you from hell. He died so that you could be holy and enjoy and appreciate and, and be satisfied in his holiness. And, and nothing symbolizes that as this table that 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 shows us that a new covenant was made not the like the old covenant where god uh, said from mount sinai be holy for i am holy and the people had to figure out how to do that somehow through the law and miserably failed but now we have been granted the grace of our lord jesus christ which empowers us to obey what god has called us to obey and so come with joyfulness for the hope of your own holiness. Come because Christ has made provision for you to be holy through his body and through his blood. For the rest of you that are not there, who have not made the decision to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then we just want you to stay right where you're at, not because we're trying to bar you from something we're enjoying, but because this means something. And without your faith in Jesus Christ, it means nothing. And in fact, the Bible tells us that it could... That that when you eat and drink unworthily, you eat and drink judgment on yourself. And we do not want that to be your case. But you've got to know we're praying for you. We are longing for the day when you can take by faith because you've partaken of Christ by faith. And so if you're interested in having a conversation about that, see myself or Pastor David after service. And we would love, we would stop everything else we're doing just to talk to you about that. So for the rest of you, come and receive these elements and take them back to your seat. And we'll take them together in just a moment. Paul writes for us, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the bread together. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. Now let's give thanks for the grace of Jesus that led him to the cross and makes us holy. Lord, we thank you that you have done the impossible, that you have, have through your shed blood, that, that covered the debt of our sin through your um, broken body that paid the penalty of all of our wickedness. Now you invite us to be like you, to, to be holy as you are holy. And God, you provide the power for us to do that and to, to live that way. And so God, we give you thanks. Lord, let our thanksgiving, let our gratitude work out throughout this coming week and, and every week after that, Lord, in, in a greater striving and working after holiness in the grace of God. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you place your hands in a receiving position, I just want to read this benediction over you. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You're dismissed.